So let's stand together for God's word. It will be John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. John 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that now um, in these next few moments, you will um, illuminate our minds um, by the Holy Spirit to understand these words, to apply these words, and to see um, what John um, why John included these words here for us and why they are in your, your holy word. And so we pray uh, now that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are entering into a new phase in John's gospel. The first four chapters were an introduction to Jesus. After John's magnificent introduction uh, at the beginning of chapter 1, you see Jesus calling together his first group of disciples and the interactions that he had had with them. And then you saw his interaction and his first miracle at the wedding of, of Cana. Uh, you saw his interaction with uh, the man Nicodemus, who came to him at night, the man of the Pharisees, in chapter 3. In chapter 4, we saw the interaction with Jesus and the woman from Samaria and her 
testimony to Jesus to all of the uh, other villagers in, uh, in that town in Samaria and how many of them had come to recognize who Jesus was and had faith in him. And then last week we looked at the official's son who had come to Jesus and asking for him to come to his house to, to heal his son who was dying. And Jesus healed him just with a word without having gone to his house. And we saw the faith of that man as he believed in Jesus' words, went back home, uh, heard on the way, heard from his servants that his son was, was uh, well, getting better, and was recovering. And he inquired, now, when did this happen? And he timed it exactly with the very words of Jesus. And then it says, and then he believed. He believed, but then he really believed and understood. Beginning in John chapter 5, we now get to a new era in Jesus' ministry where he starts to have uh, some conflict with some of the religious leaders in his day. And the, uh, the initial spark of this conflict happens because of this miracle that is occurring here that we read about in John chapter 5. And so we want to look at this miracle, and this miracle becomes key to the rest of John chapter 5. Well, we're going to save that, Lord willing, for, uh, for next week. But I wanted to look at this miracle here at the pool in Bethesda uh, and see what the Lord might teach us through it. And I would divide this section or this, this passage here up into four different parts. And so here will be the first part that I want us to take a look at. First of all, the context, and you can follow along in your handouts. Notice the context of this miracle in John chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, And after this, meaning after Jesus had been in, uh, in Cana of Galilee again a second time, and he had healed the official's son, um, it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, John mentions several feasts of Jews. He usually references as the feast or the Passover, or he might mention the specific uh, Jewish feasts, like the Feast of uh, Tabernacles or the Feast of Dedication. Uh, this one is uh, not specific. It just says a feast of the Jews. Very likely what this is is Pentecost, um, which is 40 days, or excuse me, 50 days after, uh, after the uh, Feast of Passover. So it'd be late spring. And at any rate, Jesus is back down into Jerusalem reason why I think it's probably Pentecost is because there were three uh, feasts that were required of the Jews to go to make a journey down to Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus is. It's a feast of the Jews. It's not the feast, which likely would have been Passover, and Jesus is now in Jerusalem, verse 1. And now verse 2 says, There was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, or some manuscripts have Bethsaida. You could probably see that in your textual note there, which have five roofed colonnades. So there's this pool by the Sheep Gate, and the Sheep Gate would be on the northern side of Jerusalem. So perhaps this is as Jesus is coming from the north. Uh, he's now entering into Jerusalem, uh, perhaps through the north side, perhaps even through the Sheep Gate, and he finds himself at this pool, and actually, um, I have some pictures here. This is a, a, a model, a scale model of what it looked like um, 
perhaps in those days, there's a big pool there with the, the colonnades around. And uh, here are some actual um, pictures of what the archaeologists have found in terms of uh, where those, those pools are. So this would be on the northern um, side of Jerusalem. Pretty cool, right? The, God's word tells a specific place here, and, and we, we can get a picture of where, where that actually is. So this is the context, and then notice in verse 3, it says, And in these lay a multitude of, of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, if you noticed there, I, I, Janet and I were reading this passage last night, and I, I asked her, we were kind of debating some things back and forth, and I said, well, what does verse 4 say? And so she went and looked, and she's like, there is no verse 4. And I was like, oh, what do you mean there's no verse 4? Who, rip, who stole verse 4 out of the Bible? Um, notice there, there's a footnote there, and maybe you might have a translation that includes this, but the ESV puts this in a footnote. And um, notice what it says. If you, if you have the ESV, look at the footnote at the bottom of the page where it says, some manuscripts insert wholly or in part these words, waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, some of you might be asking, why, why is that down there in the footnote and not included in the original text? Because the earliest manuscripts that we have, date-wise, don't have this in there. It's later manuscripts that have this in here, and perhaps, uh, we don't know for sure. Remember, we don't have the actual autographs of the New Testament. We don't have the actual uh, piece of parchment or whatever John wrote his gospel on. We have uh, copies, and then we have copies of those copies, and we don't even have all of the copies that were written. And sometimes, this is a, in a field called textual criticism, sometimes you have uh, manuscripts that have a few words included and some that don't have it. And so there's a whole science behind understanding why are some words in here and why are some not, and which is the original. I believe that... Um, that the original did not include the second half of verse 3 and, and verse 4. Did not include the missing verse 4. Perhaps it was, maybe it was a note in somebody's margin or somebody added an explanatory comment to kind of make sense about why it was the invalids are there and to also make sense of the man's response in verse 7. So that's why it has this story about the angel stirring the water. We don't have any other ancient evidence of, of such a tradition. But we have a great deal of confidence here uh, of verses 3 and the rest of these verses. So verse 3, it says, in, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lamed, and paralyzed. And perhaps they were there for the reason mentioned in verse 4, is they were there for some healing, uh, a miraculous healing connected to something in, in the stirring of the waters, perhaps. So that's the, the context here of this, this miracle, verses 1 through 3. Next, I want to get to the main character of this miracle, and that is the man that we're introduced in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So here's the character that we're introduced to, somebody who's in a, in a very uh, sad and hopeless state. He's there by this pool at Bethesda 
He's there with a whole multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed, and he had been in his state for 38 years. This is the man out of the entire multitude that Jesus, as he's coming by, perhaps coming into the gate, walking into Jerusalem, walking past this this pool, this is the man that Jesus identifies and picks out. Because again, in verse 3, it tells us that there was a multitude, and Jesus singles out this man, and it seems that Jesus already knows of his situation. Perhaps he gleaned it because of other people who were there, but it, it seems to suggest, again, Jesus' omniscience, like what he knows what certain people are thinking, and he knows, um, like he knew uh, uh, Nathaniel, for instance. He says, I saw you, even, even before. Notice what it says in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in there, uh, had already been there for a long time, he says to him, said to him, do you want to be healed? To this, this the, the sick man responds in verse 7. He answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. It's to this response that Jesus then gives this command and does this, this healing. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Again, notice the power of Jesus' word here. He just has to speak these words to this man, and he tells him to get up, and the man gets up. Verse 9, at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So we're introduced to the character here of this miracle and the miracle itself in verses 5 through 9. And this story, as I said earlier, becomes the catalyst for a controversy that is going to plague Jesus and his dealings with some of his, um, his adversaries over the next several chapters. And that leads us to the controversy in verses three through, or excuse me, 9 through 13, and also in verses 16 and 18. Notice what the controversy is. John tells us right away in the next paragraph. Now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So here's your adversaries. Uh, Four times in this gospel, it mentions four times in this passage, it mentions the Jews. And notice there's a footnote there. Um, that this is referring specifically to the religious leaders. He's not referring to the whole group ethnically of Jews. When John uses the Jews, he's specifically talking about the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular. And others that, as it says in the footnote here, who would be under their influence. So that's Jesus' opponents. They see this man on the Sabbath and he's carrying a mat and they go, it's not lawful for you to do that. Now this is based somewhat on the Old Testament. In the Ten Commandments, what's the, the fourth commandment? To honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And remember the four is you have four wheels, four wheels on your car, drive yourself to church, right? Uh, so honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And you are to do no work on the Sabbath. Now the Jewish traditions that would develop in, as a response to this would understand, well, how do we define work? 
How do we define what work is on the Sabbath? What are the things that you can do and cannot do? And they had a whole list of other rules that had developed in Jesus' time that would restrict and say, these are the things that you couldn't do as work. And if you had a, a mat, like this man says, or it's, it's a bed, it's ba basically think of like a, um, like a straw pallet that you could roll up and then put under your arm. Apparently, he rolled this up, put it under his arm, and was walking through Jerusalem. And then they go, That's, you're, breaking, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're breaking the, the law. You're violating the Sabbath. You're doing work on the Sabbath. So this is based rather on human traditions, not, not necessarily on the fourth commandment uh, itself. And this is the beginning of the controversy with the Jews because they start to inquire, okay, now wait, uh, you're not allowed to do this. And notice what the man, the man says. Verse 11, and he answered them to their charge that he's breaking the Sabbath. He says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who, who is this man who says to you, take up your bed and walk? Uh, and in verse 13, it says, well, the man who had been healed, he did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in that place. This becomes the beginning of this controversy. So much so, notice what happens at the end of our passage, verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. There's the first violation to which Jesus answers them. He says, my father is working, <laughs> works. You want to talk about issue of works and working on the Sabbath? He's like, my father is working and I am working. So now you're adding another layer of controversy here with the, the Jewish authorities. And that explains it here. It's not just the Sabbath. Notice it says in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this is going to be the setting for what Jesus is going to deal with in the rest of this chapter, which we will look at Lord willing next week. And there, you might have heard some people who would say, well, Jesus never explicitly says, I am God. This is one of several passages that make it quite clear. They, I mean, his enemies understood what Jesus was claiming. They were saying they, that Jesus himself was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that is the, the controversy. Now I would want to back up a little bit and then look at the confrontation. In verse 14, the confrontation in verse 14. But, but in order to do that, let me just kind of explore something here, a little bit more about this man's character. Okay, we looked at the character in verses 5 through 9, but now I want to look at the character of the character. And there's some differing opinions from commentators on how to understand the character of, of this man. One would be to look uh, Adam with a, a somewhat positive character. And that would to, uh, to recognize a couple of things that this man is, um, should, be, should be receiving some pity or compassion. After all, he'd been an invalid for 38 years. He was, as the story reveals, helpless. And as he suggests here in the story, maybe friendless. 
So a positive uh, view of his character were to recognize some of the, the difficulties this man had experienced. But I want to explore a little bit uh, what some scholars are noting here about this man's character is that there's, there's a little bit of a negative side to the character here as well. So let me just explore a negative look at, at this man's character. First of all, notice verse 7. He, he engages in what could perhaps be concluded as a little bit of excuse making. Verse 7, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the sick man says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, it could be a very desperate plight. The man is, if he's an invalid, he has no one down there to help him. Um, he, he got there somehow. He's there by the waters. So it could be that genuinely he just was not able and had no one to help him get into the pool. Or perhaps it could be a little bit of, of excuse making here. Maybe that's a little bit weak. Okay, then let's go to the next one. Notice the blame shifting in verse 11. The Jews saw the man carrying his mat and he says, it's not lawful for you to do that on the Sabbath. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. The man was in the temple. He, he, he was Jewish. He very likely knew the Sabbath rules concerning picking up uh, things, at least according to human tradition. And so instead of fessing up to it or acknowledging it in some way, he blame, blame shifts to Jesus. The reason why I'm violating your human traditions is because of Jesus or this other man. He doesn't, he doesn't know the man. So maybe a little bit of excuse making, maybe a little bit of blame shifting, maybe a little bit of tattletaling. Notice verse 15. When Jesus encounters him again in the temple uh, and he, he identifies himself, notice what the man does immediately in verse 15. The man went away. Doesn't, John doesn't record him saying anything to Jesus. It says that the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Because he didn't know when the Jews first inquired, who is it that said to you to take up your mat? Who is it that healed you? He's like, I don't know. But then when he encounters Jesus, you don't have him responding to Jesus's words. Instead, he goes, runs to the Jews and says, hey, there's the guy. There's the guy you're looking for. So let me give a fourth piece of evidence where maybe there's a, John doesn't seem to present this man in the most positive light, uh, is look at this response, especially in light of all of the others that we've seen thus far in the story. Look at the man Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night. Look at the Samaritan woman that Jesus had interacted with. And she comes to recognize that he is indeed the Messiah. Could this be the Messiah? She goes back to the village. All of the Samaritans come and they say, this indeed is the savior of the world. What about the royal official who believed that Jesus could heal his son and even took him at his word without having Jesus come back home with him, having to go overnight And then you're introduced to this man who seems, huh? John doesn't record any such revelation of the true identity of who Jesus is. 
it doesn't really even suggest that the man is even grateful in any way. It doesn't say that he went praising God. So maybe with the potential excuse making, potential blame shifting, tattletaling, and especially in light of the others who were who were Galileans, by the way. And then the last one is a last piece of evidence I would like you to look at is is skip ahead to John chapter nine. In John chapter nine, and again, like I said, chapters five through ten is uh, is this interaction between Jesus and the Jews, and it's really the conflict is is getting. Uh, much heated, uh, you have a story in John chapter 9 of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And it encompasses uh, almost the entire chapter, all of chapter 9. And I, you can notice some, some parallels here. I won't, we won't go into it in detail. We won't read this, this whole thing in detail. But just notice the parallels, the similarities, and also the contrasts between the healing of the paralytic in John 5 and the healing of the man born blind in John 9. In both stories, you have Jesus sees a man. Verses 5 through 6 of John chapter 5, Jesus saw him lying there. In John chapter 9, it begins and adds as he, that is Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus sees a man, uh, the healed, both of them are healed, by the way, by Jesus. The healed man is called by the Jews to give an account for the healing and what had happened to them. Remember in verse 10 of John 5, the Jews saw the man carrying the thing on the Sabbath. And he says, the man who healed me told me to do this. And he's like, who is that? So the Jews... Uh, interrogate the man. Here, the same thing happens in John chapter 9 with the man born blind. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. So Jesus sees a man Jesus heals the man. This miraculous healing occurs on the Sabbath. And the healed man is called by the Jews to give an account for what had happened. Also, here's the fifth little uh, similarity. Neither man knew who Jesus was at first. Right? The man in, by the pool didn't, didn't know who Jesus was. So he couldn't answer the, the Jewish authorities' uh, original question. Similar, look at verse, verse 12 of chapter 9. They said to him, where is he? Meaning, where is Jesus? Where is this man who healed you? He says, I do not know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know who that guy is. So Jesus seals, uh, uh, sees the man, heals the man, uh, heals him on the Sabbath. The healed persons are called to give an account to the Jews. Neither of them knows who Jesus is. And later, Jesus goes and finds the person. Chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus found him in the temple. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. The guy had been banished from the synagogue. And having found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? So, 
I, I think John is really supposed lining some of these events, these stories up pretty well. But there's some key differences that happen here. Here's a couple of the differences. The paralytic um, pinned the Sabbath violation on Jesus, right? Verse 12. The blind man, on the other hand, he defends Jesus. Even to the point of being kicked out of the synagogue. He gets excommunicated from his community for defending Jesus as the one who had done this miracle. Here's another difference. The blind man worships Jesus as the son of man. Notice chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, found him. He says, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. What an amazing word to say. You have seen him to a guy who had been blind his whole life. He gives him sight to see. And then when the guy sees Jesus, he says, you're looking at the son of man. It's really cool. I just like that he included that. You, you, I mean, if Jesus didn't have kind of a little smirk on his face, you've seen him. You haven't seen anything your whole life. And yet you get to see Jesus. And then notice verse 38. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Very similar to the Samaritan woman, right? Very similar to the Samaritans in Galilee. Very similar to the, to the, uh, to the royal official. The paralytic walks off. The paralytic, as far as it's recorded here for us, John has no shortage of recording the, the amazing responses of faith and worship from all of these other recipients of, uh, of a miraculous deed. This guy just walks off. No response. When Jesus sees him again, no response. Instead, he goes to the Jews. And so verse 14, it's, it's keeping that in mind that now we want to turn to the main point of conf confrontation here in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Again, I can just picture a smile on Jesus' face. But then he says these words, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Somewhat cryptic words here to a man he's just healed. Jesus doesn't have these words of confrontation with some of these other stories. The people intuitively react and respond to who Jesus is. Here Jesus, I think, perhaps is sensing a lack of response on the, uh, of faith on the man who has received this gift of health, gift of of uh, grace from Jesus and then challenges him and pushes him a little bit further. Sin no more that something worse may happen to you. Now, the big question that usually comes with this is, is Jesus connecting sin with sickness? Is Jesus connecting sin with sickness? Here. I think in uh, in. Jesus' day, that was not an uncommon view to connect 
sin, specific illnesses, specific sins with specific, uh, specific illnesses with specific sins. But I don't think that that's what Jesus is doing here. I think we have, uh, I, I think we have some suggestions here. Jesus is referring to something else. First of all, notice back again with John chapter 9, again in the parallel passage. Notice how that story begins in verse, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You notice that there was the assumption there is that the, the, the malady comes from sin, that, that's just assumed. It's just, is it his own? Because he was born this way. So what could he have done before he was even born? So is it his parents? That's what his disciples are asking. And then notice Jesus' response in verse 3. Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I think... I think we're going to go outside of John's gospel. It reminds me a little bit of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 13. Where some people had come up to Jesus and they'd asked him about a bunch of the Galileans who apparently were slaughtered by Pilate while they were doing their sacrifices. We don't have a record outside of the Bible of what happened in this story, but apparently Pilate had slaughtered a bunch of Galileans and it happened while they were engaged in some of their religious practices. So that it says their blood mingled with the mingling of the blood of the sacrifices. And so they, they asked him about it and Jesus perceives what it is that they're, they're asking. And in verse two of Luke 13, it says, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans? You think this happened to them because they had sinned and something really bad? They'd done something really bad and therefore this kind of judgment happened that they suffered in this way? And Jesus says, no. No, I tell you. He goes, but I, I will add, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This tragedy, this massacre that you that you've heard about that's in the news about these Galileans, is that a particular judgment of, from God against them? Jesus says, no. However, what happened to them is a picture of something worse. Of something worse. For you, if you don't repent. Similarly, verse, thir- uh, verse 3, um, or verse 4, Jesus says, or what about those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? So here's a a tragic accident. Um, A tower falls and kills 18 people. Untold numbers of injured. And then Jesus says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Was what happened to them a result of, of some sort of sin that was worse than all of the others? And in verse 5, he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, what happened to them becomes a picture of what happens to those who don't repent of their sins and come to faith in Christ. So I don't see that this, some some see that Jesus is connecting here the the sickness to um, the, the sin to a particular sickness 
And I, I don't think that that is the case. Uh, I will say this, um, that even though sickness and disease and illness might, be, uh, might not be a direct result of a particular sin we might have committed, it should be noted, though, that all sickness, disease, illness, maladies, blindness, lameness, all of it comes as a result of capital S sin, the fall. And so it's in this context is in what's worse. Jesus goes, hey, this is wonderful. You're able to walk again. You're well. This is amazing. But sin no more that something worse may happen to you. If you've been paralyzed for 38 years, what could be worse? Jesus is not talking about earthly sickness here. Jesus is talking about the eternal condemnation. Jesus is, is, I think, prodding this man who seems, uh, who's gone from being an invalid to apparently an ingrate. He's been, he's received this gift unasked for. He doesn't come to Jesus like the, the royal official. This uninitiated gift from Jesus for the man to walk. And Jesus gives it, and he responds with indifference and ingratitude. And so Jesus gives these prodding words. It's great that you're well, but sin no more, lest something worse might happen to you. Friends, I think we have here a picture of... um, one of the responses to, to, the, to Jesus and his gracious gift. So far, we've seen fairly positive responses from many people. And we're about to see a great deal of negative responses, in particular the religious leaders that we were introduced to here. And it seems the impetus, the powder keg for this whole thing, is, uh, is somebody who's just... Uh, That's not to say he's not grateful that he can walk, but it's to say in terms of the gift that he's been given and from whom it comes, he says, "Eh." so as our final reflection, I want us to think about this a little bit here. Here's a, I had to massage these words a little bit, but um, so this is a paraphrase. This is a paraphrase from uh, a man named Herman Ritterboss. I didn't include that on there. But he summarizes this story uh, like this. This story demonstrates the weakness of the character of the healed paralytic. It is um, a portrayal, and he goes on to say, but it's more than just that. It is a portrayal of people who will not let themselves be moved to enter the kingdom of God by Jesus' power and words, no matter how liberating the effect of those words. Think about that. The story of this healing of the paralyzed man here by this water is a portrayal of people who will not let themselves be moved to enter the kingdom of God by Jesus' power and words, no matter how liberating the effect of those words. 
What a challenge that is for us. For those of us who, who profess uh, faith in Christ, the key, uh, one of the key features of, of our life of faith is one of gratitude. A constant recalling the wondrous works that he has done for you. The wonderful gifts that he does. And I'm not talking just material things. He, I know several of you who have been through very difficult experiences. And the Lord Jesus brought you through it by his mercy and grace. Right? I think every single one of you can testify to something about that. In addition to the even grander thing of, of his wonderful salvation that he has saved you eternally from hell. But he's brought you through something. And woe to us if we ever forget, if we ever fail to look back on all of the ways that the Lord has brought us through and to respond in gratitude. Amen? But for, for those, for many who have a, a little bit of an encounter with Jesus, uh, this reminds us of the, the potential to see somebody who perhaps claims to have faith in Christ and yet forgets, who fails to pause and remember the wondrous gift that he's provided for them and the way that he has sustained them by his grace. It's also illustrative of so many people in the world today who have received common grace from Jesus' hand. The Lord causes his sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. The Lord opens up the skies and gives rain for the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous. There's a common goodness and a common grace. And here you have a demonstrate of a miraculous goodness. And some people can see that and not be moved to enter into the kingdom of God because of Jesus' words and power. No matter how liberating that effect. So friends, two things for us. Make sure we remember with gratitude. Make sure we remember with gratitude the goodness that God has shown us in Christ. And as we're sharing the gospel with other people, let us be aware that this is one of the potential responses. To hear, to know or to even understand these wonderful words and yet to walk away from Jesus indifferent and ungrateful. May that not be so for us, right? Amen? May that not be so for us. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, and we give you thank, thanks for Jesus. I love reading these stories about Jesus' interaction and picturing what it would be like to be there and to see. We are grateful that you have, in your providence and in your wisdom, have recorded these down in your word for us to, to study 
and for your spirit to use in our lives today. And I thank you for this miraculous story here. And may, may I and may all of us remember the sustaining grace and gifts that Jesus has given us in this life. May we have hearts of gratitude. May we be more like the blind man who was healed or more like the Samaritan woman or the royal official. May what we have received from Jesus cause us to rejoice in worship and in gratitude. Help us to do that. We ask in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Friends, will you stand for our closing uh, benediction? And reminder, moms with small children get to eat first. Uh, then all of the ladies who prepared and helped with that, men and all other young people get to help uh, clean and put stuff away, and then we'll go, um, we'll go eat together. Um, I said I would pray for the food, didn't I? Okay, that's a, I did say that. Uh, so let me pray for the food. I'll give you the closing benediction. Heavenly Father, we thank you, um, thinking of the wonderful gifts that you provide for us on a daily basis, and, and food is one of them, and we do not take that lightly. We know that every good gift comes down from your gracious hand above, and, um, and all of the food that is before us is an example of that. God, I ask your, your blessing upon this food and on the fellowship that will be happening around the tables um, and just knit us closer together in deeper love and connection with one another um, around this meal. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Awesome. Thank you.